it's time for the December. Yeah. Okay. December. It's time for the December episode of our Journal of Pediatric Surgery Journal Club. I'm Rod Gerardo. I'm Ellen and Cisco. We're research residents at Cincinnati Children's Hospital. We have three articles brought to you, selected by one of the editors who we actually got a chance to talk to. I'm, uh, I'm Dr. George W. Hulk III, and I'm the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Pediatric Surgery. So the first one is called Enhancing Recovery After Minimally Invasive Surgery in Children, a Systematic Review of the Literature and Meta-Analysis. This one comes from Paris, Paris, France. It does. And if you want to read along with us, you can scroll down under the media player, click on the link. We're going to give you the link to all of these articles. Uh, so this one, like the title suggests, is a systematic review and meta-analysis. Um, and we're looking at articles that looked into using ERAS protocols after minimally invasive surgeries. They defined as thoracoscopy, laparoscopy, or retroperitoneoscopy. I don't think I pronounced that right. In pediatric patients. Um, and they went way back. They went all the way back to 1975. We were fortunate enough to hear the details of this from one of the authors. So my name is uh, Louise Montalva. I'm a pediatric surgeon from Paris, France. Um, I've been currently working as a fellow in Robert Debré University Hospital for just a little bit over than a year. They found nine articles that they included in their meta-analysis. We only selected actually nine studies. There was only, after all this uh, selection, there was only nine studies that actually looked into uh, enhanced recovery after surgery, after mini invasive surgery. And I, I know that we talk about ERAS a lot. Specifically in this article, they are looking at the length of stay, the complication rate, and then the readmission rate for these patients who went on ERAS after minimally invasive surgery. Yeah, and overall they found no difference in complications. Um, but the length of stay and the 30-day readmission rate was lower after ERAS. We see that there is a decrease, decrease in length of uh, stay, uh, but there's no increase in readmission rates. I think they actually decreased, actually, in children with enhanced recovery of surgery, which, which was a surprise because we uh, expected it to be higher. And there was no increase in the complication rates, which is also quite reassuring because if we shorten the stay but we have more complications, this doesn't make sense. So. So we actually find the same results in the literature compared to what we found in our departments. Todd pointed out, I mean, ERAS is not new, but I think the concept of reducing length of stay is especially key in this time when we have COVID and, and we're trying to get people out of the hospital as soon as possible. So I'll tell you the, the relevance to today is that, you know, what ERAS has taught us is that we can push the limits on on some of the traditional thinking of how these patients need to stay in the hospital for a while, get traditional narcotics and all these long therapies. And in this crazy pandemic, as we're trying to figure out how to mobilize hospital beds and get patients out of the hospital, ERAS kind of set us up for that. And ERAS has kind of shown us that we can, that we can abbreviate the hospital stay of a lot of these patients. So um, this is just helpful as we're starting to look at how we can um, shorten hospital stays and see if we can get patients out. ERAS might help us. And here's what Dr. Holcomb thought. I think that we all think that minimally invasive surgery reduces uh, uh, post-operative discomfort, reduces hospitalization. 
But in fact, these authors were able to find that articles show, show that e, if an ERAS is applied, then you can get further reduction in these um, post-operative parameters. So I think it's, I, I, I think this study opens up uh, some eyes that there are ways to get even further improved the advantages with minimally invasive surgery. Even if at your hospital, you're not sold on ERAS or, or people around you are not sold on it, then you can still start to get in the mindset of earlier discharge. Uh, so what I would recommend would be starting to implement ERAS strategies, but without trying to um, discharge the kid earlier. Just thinking, would the kid be able to be discharged now? Like try to evaluate if the child would be discharged without actually discharging him yet, if you're a bit scared uh, about these ERAS protocols. I think that would be a good first step, uh, would be actually to like simulate uh, a discharge kind of, instead of actually discharge, discharging him yet. If you want to read the finer details about the components of their ERAS protocol, they break it down really nicely in their article. Again, you can open up the link. For us, the ultimate goal of ERAS is same day discharge. For us, the most important is that the kid is able the night after the surgery or day after the surgery, the kid can go back to his normal life, go home and his family also. That is the most important. Kids, all they want to do is get up and run around, run around uh, in, in the department. So why not run around at home really than staying in bed? So we are lucky to have the ideal candidates in pediatric surgery. All right, cool. Uh, next one. Next one is Association of Operative Approach with Outcomes in Neonates with Esophageal Atresia and Tracheoesophageal Fistula. And this one comes from Johns Hopkins. And yes. we talked to the senior author. Hi, everyone. I'm Sean Kenisaki. I'm a pediatric uh, general surgeon at the Johns Hopkins Children's Center in Baltimore, Maryland. So they looked back from, from 2014 to 2018, they looked at neonates that went uh, underwent operative repair for an esophageal atresia and tracheoesophageal fistula. And then they looked at the approach, either open approach or thoracoscopy, and if they subsequently converted to an open procedure. One of the motivations for doing the study was to understand uh, currently how, what the, the current state is and uh, how much better or worse the thoracoscopic approach is. We were also on, uh, interested in over that time period, uh, whether or not there was a trend uh, or change in the use of thoracoscopy over that time period. I think it was kind of impressive actually that they had almost 900 neonates in this study. One of the major messages or findings of this paper was that only about 16% of uh, operative approaches are, uh, were thoracoscopic. And so the vast majority of tracheoesophageal fistula in this country, at least, is, is approached through the uh, traditional open thoracotomy. I actually was not surprised that the rate of thoracoscopic surgery was so low, uh, but I think it really just validates that. Uh, so Dr. Kunisaki was surprised about this 50% conversion rate. And that's uh, something that really nobody likes to talk about or um, it's not well reported in the literature. And so that was a little bit unexpected that it was so high, but perhaps uh, really is a testament to how challenging uh, the thoracoscopic repair is. And so um, that was, uh, I thought, a very interesting finding. Even though there was that 
you know, high conversion rate. Um, they didn't see an increased rate of complications in those patients. It lends to um, uh, a common um, saying that many surgeons have is that it's okay to convert to open. Here's a Dr. Holcomb thought. We haven't really seen much lately in the literature on comparing perioperative outcomes with the open operation and the corpuscopic operation. And, there, and as I mentioned, there are limitations to this study. I, I don't think we'll ever get a prospective randomized trial comparing the two. Um, so I think uh, anytime we can look at comparative data, it's, uh, it's helpful. To me, the punchline of this is, hey, you can do these safely thoracoscopically. You can open if you have to, but you know, you're not gonna cause more complications necessarily. This brings up a, an interesting point in that how do we do, how do we increase adoption of a new challenging technique in surgery? And we've tried courses, which some could argue don't really work because one day of trying something isn't really enough. Um, really, you need regular practice and mentorship with someone who does it, and it really almost has to be done as part of your fellowship. I do think that a mentorship program that involves in-person mentorship followed by telementoring is probably the only way that we're going to measurably get practicing surgeons doing this. However, in time, those numbers will increase because more and more people will be doing this during their fellowship. I think there are two major areas uh, of next steps in order to try to improve outcomes and improve the, the use of thoracoscopic repair in esophageal atresia. Uh, the first is simulators. Um, simulators have been around for, for over a decade now, and um, quite honestly, they're getting uh, quite good. And in doing a, an anastomosis in a three kilogram uh, chest is, is one of the most technically challenging exercises uh, that we do as, as pediatric surgeons. And so I only see uh, the need and the usefulness of these simulators to be um, better. But I think a, a more mentored approach, uh, even uh, through telemedicine, if that's even uh, a possibility in the future, you, you can envision uh, may help to uh, increase the utilization of this because ultimately I do think the long-term outcomes are, are likely to be better with the thoracoscopic approach. Perfect. Next article. Yeah. So the last one is called Long-Term Outcomes and Satisfaction Rates After Costal Cartilage Resection for Slipping Rib Syndrome. And this one is out of Children's Mercy Hospital in Kansas City. And again, yeah. we talked to the senior author, Dr. St. Peter. Yeah, I'm Sean St. Peter, uh, Surgeon-in-Chief Senior Vice President, Children's Mercy Hospital in Kansas City. So uh, this was a retrospective chart review, kind of a follow-up on Children's Mercy's previous publication about slipped rib syndrome or slipping rib syndrome. And here they uh, looked at patients from 2006 to 2020. Well, well, the reason we continued to look at this is because it's sort of an emerging, um, I'd say problem, in that is being recognized more frequently. And it's also an emerging technique. The reason that we embark in this work is that we need to know what, what is the ultimate outcome of this operation and are these people getting better? Um, it seems from the natural history, they're typically not going to get better with conservative management. And that's 
what you'll see when you look at the, the, the patient's presentations in this article is that they're frequently symptomatic for years. And as in many cases, they've been to a multitude of physicians in multiple disciplines, and sometimes they've traveled from city to city. Ended up with 49 patients who underwent a total of 67 operations, and then they kind of characterized the symptomatology and then the patient population, and then looked into um, post-operative uh, outcomes. And the patient that's had a reasonable result from a local injection and then uh, had their, the pain recur is uh, that that for starters is a reasonable candidate. Uh, but then you typically can can palpate the area somewhere between nine and eleven in the in the anterolateral costal margin and and replicate the pain. Then it, it'll be tender. They'll jump and the. Um, the hooking maneuver that people describe, I wouldn't do that because that hurts on everybody. Um, but if, you, if you're pressing in that area, you'll typically be able to um, replicate the pain. In, in a better case, you'll be able to, to feel the pop. Some folks can replicate it for you. They'll just, they can, they can turn to the side or flex their abdomen and you'll be able to feel the rib pop. Uh, in some cases, you can see it move. And then um, if you press, on the sides of the chest simultaneously, that will frequently replicate the pain in the anterior position where they're having the pain. And that is also pretty telltale. And if I'm being honest, I actually knew absolute zero about this before this came across our emails and I had got a chance to read it. Um, that's probably because I'm a junior resident, but um, it also sounds like Todd doesn't see this very often either, and here's what he thought. It's good to know that this data shows that it works, and it's just, it's, it's, it's an important paper to uh, make the surgeon aware of the diagnosis, and that it's something you need to consider when they have this sort of right upper quadrant or left upper quadrant pain. Dr. Holcomb pointed out the good thing about this paper was like the long-term follow-up. I think it's one of the bigger cohorts of these patients that we have for outcomes. And there's like a four and a half year follow-up. You know, it shows overall good, good outcomes like we talked about with costal cartilage resection for slipping ramp syndrome in these patients. There's little in the literature of about this this disease, but I think it's fairly commonly seen by pediatric surgeons. And I'll bet that uh, many pediatric surgeons aren't sure, perhaps what it is, or you know how to how to take care of it. I guess the, the other thing to know for people listening, if if this isn't something you're doing, is just to have it as a consideration in patients that are coming with, you know, this pain. I agree. I think the take home point here is, hey, look, here are the things that someone with slip rib syndrome is going to complain about. And here is the demographic data. And if medical manage doesn't work, hey, guess what? Surgery is okay too. So what's our summarization for this? Our summarization. <laughs> Here's three articles. I, I feel like these are three articles that... Um, I guess I would say here are three articles that are informative and could affect your practice. They won't necessarily affect everyone's practice because some people are already doing these things. But... If you don't know a lot about some, you know, slip syndrome or 
you're not using ERS protocols. Or you're not doing your esophageal atresia repairs thoracoscopically. You know, here are a few articles that might be trying to nudge you in a certain direction. If you like this episode, if you like this series, let us know. Leave a review, leave a comment, whether you're coming to us from social media, YouTube, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, whatever. Download the State Current Pediatric Surgery app. But until next time, I'm Rod. I'm Ellen. And remember, knowledge, knowledge should, should be, be free. free. It's always really good. close. That was, that was good. <laughs>